This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem. Of a detour. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode features dramatizations of dismemberment and violence. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Please note the story you're about to hear is not drawn from any single account of the monsters Scylla and Charybdis. We have combined several myths to bring you a unique look at these fierce sea monsters. Jason stood at the bow of the Argo. His steely eyes scanned the horizon, searching for any hazards that might spell trouble for the ship. Behind him, the Argonauts rode as one, keeping in time with the steady drumbeat that floated from the rear of the ship. Their mission had been a rousing success. The heroes had sailed halfway across the world to the distant land of Colchis. They had faced monsters, witches, and barbarians. At long last, they had retrieved the legendary Golden Fleece, which was now wrapped around Jason's broad shoulders. But their journey wasn't over. They still had to make it home alive. They'd been hugging the coast all morning and were now nearing the narrow strait between the southmostern tip of the landmass and a nearby island. Jason eyed the cliffs, deftly aware that despite the lack of wind, the ship was gradually picking up speed. The Argo was trapped in a current and was being swept further out to sea. He gave the command and the sailors responded, rowing in the opposite direction of the pull. A strange sound filled the air, like the roar of a thousand lions, engulfing the drums. At last, Jason saw the source of the tumult. A massive whirlpool had opened in the sea and was drawing the ship toward it. If they didn't break free of its pull, the Argo and its crew would be pulled down and smashed upon the bottom of the sea. Jason was about to shout for the men to turn away from the maelstrom when he heard an even more terrible sound. He turned to look at the northern cliffs and spotted something moving there. Long, gray tentacles slithered from a dark cave, reaching for the Argo, and at the end of each tentacle was a horrible, serpentine face. Jason stared at the twin hazards before him, uncertain of what to do. If the Argo drifted any further south, they'd be caught in the maelstrom, but go too far in the other direction, and they might come within reach of the monster. 
either way meant almost certain death, but he had to make a decision. Jason and the Argonauts were trapped between Scylla and Charybdis. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling the stories of their origins, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts. Where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose some of humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today we're discussing Scylla and Charybdis, two vicious sea monsters that were said to reside in a strait within the Mediterranean Sea. Together, this formidable duo spelled the end for many Grecian adventurers. The open seas were a major force in the ancient Greek world, often synonymous with danger as much as sustenance. Many Greeks relied heavily on fishing and overwater trade for their livelihoods. The land outside the major city-states was full of dangers, from wild animals to barbarians, so most exploration was done by sea. But travel by water involved its own dangers, Ancient Greek seafarers traveled in long, narrow ships called triremes, and while these vessels were sturdy, there was little room on board for anything but the crew. Explorers had to drop anchor and go ashore every night to hunt and forage for food, which meant that they were constantly at risk of running aground on rocky shoals or reefs. Those who ventured further from shore were at the mercy of the weather, a sudden storm could kick up massive waves, capsizing a trireme and sending its crew to their watery graves. The ancient Greeks used myths to explain everything in their lives, and the sea was no different. The alluring sirens warned of hazards close to rocky shoals, while creatures like the Ketus and the Scolopendra represented the perils of the deep. One of the most dangerous areas known to the Greeks was the Strait of Messina, a narrow gap of water between the island of Sicily and the southernmost tip of the Italian mainland. So many sailors lost their lives here that the Greeks conjured a pair of sea monsters to warn of its perils. The first was Charybdis, a ravenous creature that represented a massive whirlpool. The second was Scylla, a vicious, many-headed monster that lived in the sharp cliffs nearby. Together, they were so dangerous that any ship that attempted to pass between them faced near-certain death. But Scylla and Charybdis were not always bloodthirsty monsters. Long before they terrified sailors, they were both beautiful sea nymphs. 
The sea god Glaucus was tending to his oyster garden. One by one, he tickled the shells until the oysters giggled. Quick as a thought, he would snatch the pearls away before their shells clamped shut again. He'd been collecting them for days and now had a thousand pearls. They were the perfect gift to win the heart of his beloved. Some months earlier, Glaucus had been frolicking off the coast, blowing the waves into shore, when he spotted a nymph. She was naked and strolling along the water's edge, the foam settling around her thighs like lace. In that moment, Glaucus fell in love. Rushing along a cresting wave, he raced to the nymph's side. But when the nymph spotted Glaucus with his seaweed hair and fish tail, she turned and ran for the hills. She climbed atop the local bluffs and stared down at the sea, looking for the monster who scared her so. Then Glaucus crashed against the rocks. With each slap into the cliff face, he cried, Do not be afraid, nymph. I do not mean to hurt you. I am but a god, stronger even than the many sons of Poseidon, and I will crash upon this rock until it wears away, so that I may kiss your feet again. But the nymph was horrified at the monstrous face of Glaucus and rebuffed his advances. In utter despair, Glaucus knew he needed more help. He went to visit Circe, the most powerful sorceress of the Mediterranean. Glaucus poured out his heart to Circe. His words flowed with such passion and such fervor that the hard-hearted witch eventually stopped to listen. The all-knowing sorceress, of course, knew the nymph. Her name was Scylla, and her beauty was renowned amongst both mortals and gods alike. Glaucus had to have her. He presented Circe with the thousand pearls. He knew the witch loved the moon and that these might remind her of it. Circe considered the gifts and the god's request. Her face remained stoic as she promised Glaucus her help. But deep inside her heart, she had fallen for the sea god. His impassioned words had softened her. His jewels had solidified those feelings. Fixing him with her piercing gaze, Circe asked if Glaucus was certain of his love for Scylla. The god fell to his knees, professing that seaweed would grow on the highest mountains before he would give up on his beloved. As Circe listened, a fierce anger grew within her chest, but her expression remained inscrutable. After a moment's pause, she nodded. In exchange for the pearls, she would give the sea god a potion. All Glaucus had to do was slip a single drop into the nymph's bath, and she would be his forever. Then Circe leaned close to Glaucus and whispered the location of Scylla's cave into his ear. Glaucus tore through the sea, his strong arms and tail propelling him through the waves. Soon he reached the same stretch of coast where he had first glimpsed the beautiful nymph. Turning inland, he found a small inlet and a deep tide pool. This was the place where Scylla went to bathe. 
As Glaucus entered the inlet, he heard Scylla coming down the path to the pool. He dove instantly beneath the water and swam behind a line of rocks. As the sun dipped beneath the horizon, Scylla disrobed and entered the pool. She waded out until she was waist deep in the water and began to wash her hair. Scylla froze suddenly, sensing a disturbance in the water around her. She wiped the salt water from her eyes and looked around. Her breath caught in her throat as a sleek, gray body briefly breached the surface mere feet away. She leaped back instinctively, and the creature moved in the same instant. As Scylla struck out for the beach, the sound of hissing serpents and barking dogs filled her ears. She dared not turn around to see the creatures that were following her, but she could tell that there were many. Out of the corner of her eye, she glimpsed stark white teeth, dark, drenched fur, and glistening scales. She felt the beast's hot breath on the nape of her neck and was certain that at any moment they would strike. At last, Scylla threw herself from the water and onto the white sand. Only now did she dare to look back. And when she did, her heart caught in her throat. The creatures had followed her onto the beach. They would follow her everywhere now. They were her. Scylla's legs were gone. While her upper body remained unchanged, her lower half had been replaced by a writhing mass of hissing scales and snarling fur. In place of her legs were six long, snake-like bodies, almost like the tentacles of a squid, except that each one ended in the head of a fanged serpent. Further up, the necks and heads of two slobbering canines sprouted from the base of her torso. As Scylla looked down at her new body, a movement near the pool caught her attention. Someone was watching her from behind the rocks. The sea god Glaucus stared at Scylla in shock, taking in the ugly, monstrous thing she had become. Cold horror washed over him as he realized the obvious truth. This brutal transformation had been his own doing. Circe had tricked him. His eyes locked with Scylla's. The nymph, if she could still be called such a thing, had seen him. Glaucus stood, not yet certain what he was going to do. He wanted to comfort her, to apologize for what he had done. Slowly, Scylla's six serpent heads turned to face him. The hounds at her waist watched him hungrily, lips peeling back to reveal glistening fangs. And Scylla's own face was fixed with a look of unbridled fury. Before Glaucus could move, the monster struck. Coming up, Scylla is joined by her other half, the monster Charybdis. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now back to the story. Scylla and Charybdis were a pair of monsters from ancient Greek mythology who were said to live within the Strait of Messina near the southern Italian coast. Feared by sailors across the Mediterranean Sea, the duo was known for their voracious anger, directed at any mariners who dared to sail through their treacherous home. But before they became a troublesome twosome, Scylla and Charybdis each had their own twisted origin story. Scylla's origin is found in Book 14 of Ovid's Metamorphoses, composed in the year 8 CE. Like many other figures in Grecian mythology, Scylla's story is a lesson in tragedy. For in the world of gods and mortals, the price of beauty is often exceedingly high. Scylla unknowingly provokes the jealousy of the sea witch Circe, and as a result is transformed into something ugly and horrific. Scylla was so powerful that Hera warned the great heroes of Greece, Jason and Odysseus, not to even attempt to face her. Any mortal who did would not escape her wrath. But as terrible as Scylla was, she was still just one half of the Mediterranean Sea's most frightening duo. Across the Strait of Messina, not far from Scylla's jagged cliffs, lived a monster that was every bit as fearsome. Charybdis lay at the bottom of the sea, sucking in thousands of tons of ocean water several times a day. Any sailor who got caught in her current would be carried to a brutal death in her gaping jaws. And Charybdis wasn't just an imagined monster. She was the ancient Greeks' explanation for a massive maelstrom or whirlpool. Today, it's better known as Gorophilo. Like Scylla, Charybdis began her existence as something entirely different. The sea nymph Charybdis loved her life. Deep in the trenches, where the pesky humans above couldn't bother her, she learned the thousand languages of the abyss. She spoke with every fish, every crustacean. She even gossiped with the coral itself. She spent her days spinning sea foam on her secret loom, frolicking with her sister nymphs and making bets on hermit crab races. It was a time of peace. But she was growing older, and the world was changing. Her uncle, Zeus, and her father, Poseidon, were no longer on speaking terms. When they drew lots for control at the start of all things, Zeus won the land, and Poseidon was left with the oceans. But the king of Olympus wasn't satisfied. As the ages passed, Zeus continued to plant fresh mountains in the sea. Wherever Charybdis looked, an island was forming. She could count at least 30 new ones just this century. 
Her father, Poseidon, was beside himself. His face a bluster of rage. He roared, There will be no sea left for us. Charybdis knew Poseidon and Zeus had been bickering for eons. After all, they were brothers. But this quarrel felt different. On land, the Greeks constructed large temples to Zeus, not giving Poseidon the same respect. Zeus's name was Almighty. Poseidon was becoming a faint memory. Then, Zeus's followers began to steal Charybdis's oldest friends from the sea. Fish disappeared from the trenches in net after net. Crustaceans were pulled up in traps. She could hear their frightened cries. And so it was that down there in the abyss, it began to grow silent. She was running out of creatures to talk to. Over time, Charybdis's anger slowly boiled. Then that anger became a white-hot rage. Exploding from the midnight dark trench, she swam into her father's abode and insisted that it was time to put an end to Zeus's machinations. It was time to take back their home. Poseidon looked down upon his ferocious daughter from his coral throne and nodded. He had a plan. It was the anniversary of Zeus's defeat of the Titans, and all of Olympus was abuzz with celebration. One by one, the gods lay their gifts before the king. Finally, Poseidon approached Zeus's throne. Bowing low, he then stood and held his trident aloft. Zeus watched as the seas retreated further and further back. He smiled at Poseidon, believing that his brother had finally acquiesced and ceded the seas to him. With radiant joy, Zeus filled the heavens with a million lightning bolts. It was a celebration befitting divinity, and it needed more wine. Dionysus passed a never-emptying flagon around. Zeus drank deeply, taking gulp after gulp of the red liquor. When he was properly drunk, he turned to his brother, ready to gloat further. But Poseidon's face was set in a cold smirk. Below Olympus, a loud rumble began. The gods raced to the balcony and looked down at the slopes of Olympus. An enormous tsunami, at least a thousand miles high, was rushing toward the Grecian coasts. And atop the highest wave stood Charybdis herself, directing the oceanic assault like a wild general. Her voice rang with the oldest language she knew, the language of the water itself. This was the first volley in the unending war between land and sea. For every island that Zeus molded into being, the sea would drag a billion grains of sand back into its fathomless stomach. Howling like a banshee, Charybdis drove tidal wave after tidal wave deep into the land. Water washed away villages and temples and flooded the olive groves and fields where the shepherds tended their flocks. With each Greek man she drowned, she whispered the name of one of the ocean creatures who had been killed. To the terrified Greeks, 
Her voice was like the rush of water itself. Endless towering waves scoured the Mediterranean coastline, drowning vast acres under still heaving seas. From Olympus, Zeus watched as his land was devoured by the ocean. He saw Charybdis slowly annexing his kingdom and peoples wave by wave, flooded city-state by flooded city-state. The intensity of his rage burnt off the drunkenness like an evaporating cloud. His brother had gone too far. Now he would take Poseidon's precious daughter. He reached for another thunderbolt and hurled it with all the strength he could muster. As the wave broke against Mount Olympus, Charybdis saw a blinding white light streak across the cosmos. The thunderbolt struck her square in the chest. For a moment, nothing happened. Charybdis continued to ride, Valkyrie-like, haughtily laughing as the wave climbed the sacred mountain. Then the beautiful nymph began to transform. Her hands went to her mouth. Her soft Aphrodite-like lips began to curl back over her teeth. And with each terrified gasp, her mouth began to widen. Her jaws stretched. Soon they'd become an enormous and vicious maw, at least a hundred yards in diameter. With each breath, she began to pull in the very clouds above her. The stars even trembled. But Zeus's rage was only getting started. As Poseidon watched, his beautiful daughter's once lithe legs and arms began to shorten into putty-like stumps. They were transformed into numb and ineffectual flippers. She was turning into a horrific monster. But Zeus's wrath was still not sated. He was going to make an example of Poseidon's daughter. She would pay dearly for her insolence. Stepping down from Mount Olympus, Zeus picked up the now monstrous Charybdis and plunged into the deepest part of the sea. When he was at the very floor of the abyss, Zeus called to Hephaestus, god of the forge. He demanded chains so strong that even he could not break them. Hephaestus delivered these chains to Zeus, who used them to bind the squirming Charybdis to the ocean floor. Charybdis roared and struggled, but the bonds would not break. She would remain in this prison forever until the very seas ran dry. Poseidon begged his brother for relief, but Zeus was not finished. As a final punishment, he cursed Charybdis with an unquenchable thirst, one that even the entire sea could not slake. Thrice daily, the former nymph would attempt to quench her thirst. She would open her gigantic mouth and drink, swallowing a billion gallons with each gulp. Her insatiable thirst would form a whirlpool, one that reached to the very bottom of the deepest trenches of the seas. But despite this cruel prison, 
Charybdis's fight wasn't over. Whenever she swallowed the sea, any mariners in the vicinity would be swept down to her waiting jaws. She swallowed them, ships and all, a last act of revenge on the followers of Zeus. Coming up, Charybdis and Scylla join forces to become the deadliest monsters of the ancient Greek seafaring world. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, back to the story. Scylla and Charybdis both began their lives as beautiful sea nymphs, but were changed into monsters against their own will. While Scylla was castigated for her extreme beauty, Charybdis was transformed as punishment for challenging Zeus. Both ended up in the Strait of Messina, transformed into vicious beasts that would forever threaten passing ships. Like Scylla before her, Charybdis was also said to be impervious. The story of her origin, found in Ovid's Heroides from the first century BCE, is a classic tale of a figure caught between the gods. While Scylla and Charybdis have distinct origins, they're most commonly thought of as a pair, working in tandem to threaten Greek sailors. Together, they appear in the stories of three of the greatest heroes of Greek antiquity, Jason, the captain of the Argo, the great hero Hercules, and the wise general Odysseus. Jason's run-in with Scylla and Charybdis comes from his quest for the Golden Fleece. This ancient tale was first recorded in the 3rd century BCE by Apollonius of Rhodes in his epic poem, Argonautica. Before passing through the Strait of Messina, Jason learns that he has a crucial choice to make. One sea lane leads to the Plankti, or Wandering Rocks, known for closing on any ships that attempt to pass through the canyon. The other lane passes straight to the murderous Scylla and Charybdis. Fortunately for his crew, Jason has the favor of the goddess Hera. She sends the sea nymph, Thetis, to guide the Argo directly between the two monsters, narrowly avoiding them both. Thanks to his cool head and the intervention of the gods, the ship escapes unscathed. It would not be the same for the Greek hero of the Trojan War, Odysseus. 
Odysseus had left Troy with a singular goal, to return home to Ithaca and his wife Penelope as soon as possible. But the gods stood in his way at every turn. Great monsters, terrible seas, they all became obstacles on Odysseus's journey. But perhaps the most seductive was the temptation provided by the beautiful enchantress Circe. For over a year, Odysseus lived alongside her. But though his lust for Circe was strong, Odysseus's eternal love for Ithaca and Penelope pulled at his heart. Eventually, he could no longer deny the urge. He had to leave. Even though Circe was saddened by his departure, she respected the cunning Odysseus and wished to see him return home safely. Calling him to her side, she spread her arms slowly over a cistern of water. The water rippled and an image formed. Tears sprang to Odysseus's eyes as he realized what he was looking at. It was the island of Ithaca, his home. Circe reached into the pool, cupping her palm to catch the water. When she lifted it from the pool, a new image floated in her hand. It was a dark strait between two harrowing cliffs. Circe pointed to the southern cliff and spoke. On this wall is a cave. In it is a monster of my own creation, with a terrible hunger for men's flesh. Be wary. Odysseus nodded, but Circe wasn't finished. She pointed to the northern cliff and continued, But near this cliff lies yet another monster, one so powerful it will swallow your entire ship whole. Odysseus frowned as he considered the image. The monsters were so close to one another that any effort to avoid one would send him right into the jaws of the other. When he asked Circe what he should do, Circe unleashed a mirthful laugh before answering, Do not trouble your crew with these matters, lest they lose heart. You are their captain. Your concern is not for a single man, but for the ship. Then Circe spread her fingers and the water fell through, taking the image with it. The next morning, the crew packed their camps and loaded their supplies onto the ship. As they sailed away, Odysseus watched the Enchantress as long as he could. Soon, Circe's island was a small dot on the horizon. The mainsail filled with a strong headwind, tugging the ship further out to sea. Odysseus swore he heard Circe's voice intertwined in that rush of wind, whispering goodbye a thousand times. Even though his heart ached for the sorceress, he was pleased to be heading home once again. They reached the strait in no time at all. The two cliffs, gray and menacing, towered in the distance. Odysseus gave the order to lower the sail. The men looked confused, but obeyed without question. Their captain had not told them about the dangers that lay before them. But it did not take long for them to realize that something was wrong. 
Even with the sails drawn, the ship continued to pick up speed. Several sailors called out with worry. Some strange current was drawing them into the strait. Odysseus barked for them to focus on their oars, but his voice was lost in a deafening roar. The men rushed to the deck's railing to see what was causing the sound. Their eyes widened with fear. A massive whirlpool had suddenly opened at the mouth of the strait. This was the source of the currents that had dragged them along at such a dangerous clip. And if they couldn't steer free from its centrifugal clutches, they would be swept down to the floor of the sea. Odysseus shouted over the sound of the maelstrom, ordering the men back to their positions. They seized their oars and began rowing with all their might. For a long moment, the ship was perfectly stationary. The maelstrom's current dragged it back, while the men's furious rowing pushed it forward. Neither force was strong enough to defeat the other. Still shouting orders, Odysseus glanced back at the whirlpool. Beneath the waves, he glimpsed a massive, round eye, wide, flaring nostrils, razor-sharp teeth. They formed a vast circle, enormous jaws stretched impossibly wide. The mouth of Charybdis. Then, with a final concerted effort, the ship shot forward. The crew's rowing had won out, breaking free of the force of Charybdis's sucking maw. Odysseus shut his eyes in relief. They had done it. But his task was not yet complete. Steering away from the maelstrom had sent them straight for the southern cliffs, the cliffs where Circe's own creation lay in wait. The men cried out in fear as Scylla emerged from her cavern, grinning with all nine of her mouths. The hounds barked frantically, their jaws frothing with spit. The serpentine heads hissed as they reached for the ship, wrapping around several of the oars. Slowly, Scylla began to pull the ship closer to her cave. The men tried to pull their oars free of Scylla's limbs, but it was no use. She howled in mad delight as the deck of the ship came into reach. Then Scylla's multiple heads swarmed in unison, strafing the deck. While many men leapt from her bloodthirsty jaws, other men were snatched away and carried off into her cave. Their terrified screams echoed off the cliffs, only to be silenced a moment later. Through all this, Odysseus remained stoic. Steering into Scylla's path had been no accident, for he had listened well to Circe's words. If the ship had been drawn into Charybdis' open jaws, the ship and all its crew would have been lost. Against Scylla's many fangs, they would lose many, but with luck, some would survive. Soon, all of Scylla's mouths were occupied, having snatched away nearly a quarter of the ship's crew. Odysseus roared for the remaining men to row. They seized the oars and did as he ordered. 
sea foam sprayed their waxen faces, washing away the thick blood that drenched the deck. Noticing that the ship was quickly drifting away, Scylla reached out and snatched a final sailor from the deck. The man's screams rang in Odysseus's ears as the serpent and canine jaws tore him into pieces. With blood still running down her naked breasts, Scylla threw back her human head and howled. The men didn't stop rowing until Scylla and Charybdis were far behind. They looked around at one another, taking stock of the battered ship and noting which of them had survived. Odysseus shut his eyes, making a silent prayer to the gods. Then he shouted for the men to pick up their oars again. They could grieve at home. In the ancient Greek seafaring world, the very real dangers of the deep were frequently conflated with the tales of mythological beasts. Thus, the deadly cliffs of Italy's southern tip became the vicious Scylla, while the nearby whirlpool became the gaping jaws of Charybdis. Centuries later, these vicious creatures would be remembered for the horrible choice they presented to Greek sailors. In the 1700s, the idiom between Scylla and Charybdis became common parlance to describe a decision between two evils. The heroes Jason and Odysseus both faced this decision in different ways, but each of their methods reveals a lot about the mindset of the ancient Greeks. Jason chose the near-impossible task of navigating directly between the two monsters. Notably, he only survived thanks to the intervention of the gods, who sent the sea nymph Thetis to guide the Argo through the strait. The fact that not even the great hero Jason could defeat Scylla and Charybdis alone reminds the audience that no man has control of his own fate. Relying on the gods did not guarantee that he would survive, but it did give him a chance. In the end, his story suggests that the only way to navigate the world is to plunge ahead and pray you've got the gods on your side. Odysseus's passage through the strait carries another message. As a general and a hero of the Trojan War, Odysseus was known for his wisdom and unparalleled cleverness. The famed Trojan horse was his idea, and yet his amazing intellect couldn't help him avoid Scylla and Charybdis entirely. His final decision to risk the many-headed Scylla over the jaws of Charybdis honors the values of practicality, putting the group before the individual and reason before emotion. Together, Scylla and Charybdis are some of the most memorable sea monsters from ancient Greek mythology. As different as they might appear, they're eternally linked by the proximity of the landmarks they represent and the fact that they began their lives as lovely sea nymphs. Side by side, they will forever visit their dark revenge upon any sailor who comes between them.
Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Drew Moreland, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.